Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That is Genesis 9, 5 through 6. Guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. And as we give a little commercial at the beginning, we want you guys to go out and support our sponsors. As I talked about on Tuesday's episode, we got a new sponsor, Stevenson Knives. Make sure you check them out. But also... Leave a five-star rating and review. That is one of the ways that this show is going to get out to more people is when you leave reviews, when you comment on Instagram posts, all those different things that the algorithm likes that I don't understand, it helps us. So if you wouldn't mind, please do that. And guys, if you're watching me on YouTube, you've already seen it, but do you see my face? Doesn't my face look especially distinguished and amazing today? It's because I've got a Fu Manchu going, my friends, and I'm not doing this just because it looks awesome, which it does. Don't, don't ask my wife. You know, she doesn't really get to have an opinion, even though she does, but not on this show. This is my show. She isn't going to have an opinion on my show, but I support the Movember movement. So that is Mustache November. So if you guys are not really familiar with this, it's been around for a long time now, but Movember is an annual event which involves men growing mustaches during the month of November. And it's ordered to raise awareness for men's health issues. It started out just as like a prostate cancer thing, but it's extended out to testicular cancer, men's suicide, some other things, just basically men being up and moving and doing all those things. And just for me personally, guys, one of the reasons why I do this is because a man in my life that's very, very close to me is battling prostate cancer right now. And also, if you've been listening to the show for a while, a few months back, actually talked about how one of the guys from my foxhole landed and killed himself. And so male suicide is something that hits close home to, uh, to home for me as well. And so, you know, this is this is funny and this is whatever. And, you know, people will look at the, my face and laugh because, it, you know, I went from a beard to this thing. But at the end of the day, it is for a serious issue. If somebody asks me about it, I tell them about Movember. I tell them about those things, try to encourage them to take care of themselves. Now, the Movember Foundation runs uh, the Movember charity event. It's it's housed at Movember.com. So if you guys want to go and support them, if you want to hit them up, if you at least want to share some of their stuff, you can absolutely do that as well. Now, now, to those of you that are listening to this on time, I would like to tell you, happy Thanksgiving. Now, I've got this thing going. This is going to be two years in a row where I basically, I'm not trying to ruin your Thanksgiving, but I'm talking about really, really serious subjects on Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving 2020, I talked about suicide, right? And so I went into a big, long subject about Thanksgiving and suicide and all those different things. A lot of guys really, really liked that episode, but again, the timing was odd. I will admit that it was odd because it was on Thanksgiving. And then today we're going to go ahead and do something else. We're going to talk about the death penalty. So happy Thanksgiving. Let's talk about the death penalty. But let me give you kind of an idea of what we're going to be going over today. We're going to look at how Christians should view the death penalty. So you should definitely stick around for that because we're going to go through the biblical basis for the death penalty. Uh, we're going to respond to some of the common objections to the death penalty. You know, when people say the death penalty is racist or, you know, the death penalty doesn't deter crime or innocent people have been executed before, so we should get rid of it. We're going to show you how to deal with all of those different responses. But before we get there, we need to talk about why I decided to tackle this subject now. It's not just because of Thanksgiving and I'm just looking for a horrible topic to talk about. It's because it's very pertinent to what we're talking about and kind of what we're going over. And that's because of the Julius Jones case. So let me give you about a 30,000 foot overview of this case, just in case you have not been paying attention to the news and you hadn't heard anything about it. It was obviously very, very big news here in my state, in the state of Oklahoma, but it's been national and international news as well. So 30,000 foot view. 
July 28th, 1999 in Edmond, Oklahoma. That's the town I've lived in since 2004. Paul Howell, who was a local businessman, he pulled into the driveway of his parents' home. Uh, That's where he was living at the time. His two daughters were with him in the car. When he opened the driver's side door, he was shot in the head. Okay. Hal was then thrown from the vehicle and the murderer that shot him in the head jumped into the driver's seat, ran over Hal's body as he drove away. So there were two black assailants that were on site because they were trying to steal Hal's SUV, which they did, obviously. His daughter, Rachel, nine years old, was in the backseat of the vehicle and his other daughter as well. And they witnessed the murderer uh, walk up to the vehicle. Rachel even said she remembers waving at the guy as he was walking up to the vehicle because she's nine years old. She doesn't really know any better. So she watched this guy shoot her father in the head. Uh, Paul Hal's sister, Megan, also witnessed the entire crime and she'll be very important here in just a second. But Julius Jones and Christopher Jordan were arrested and indicted on first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit a felony. That was for the carjacking. Now, police in uh, Oklahoma, they found the murder weapon wrapped in a red bandana in Julius Jones's home. Okay. Julius Jones claimed that he was innocent. He's claimed he's innocent till, till this day. He and his family even claimed that he was at home playing Monopoly and eating spaghetti when the murder and carjacking occurred. So Julius Jones also claimed that Christopher Jordan, his accomplice that day to steal the vehicle, actually planted the murder weapon in his home to frame him. Uh, Julius Jones also claimed that one of the arresting officers called him an N-word when he was arrested because, of course, why not set up the racism uh, defense as your possible defense as opposed to dealing with your own guilt? And then Christopher Jordan, uh, the, the other guy, he eventually entered a plea agreement agreement where he confessed to being the getaway driver, but not the shooter. So he got a 30 year sentence for murder and conspiracy. And he got this deal in exchange for testifying against Julius Jones. Julius Jones was eventually found guilty of first degree murder, and he was sentenced to death in 2002. So now we need that kind of brings us up to speed as to kind of what happened with this whole crime. But now we need to talk about why this is pertinent, because last week, Julius Jones was set to be executed on November the 18th of 2021. In just four hours before the scheduled execution, and this is after the parole board suggested that his sentence be commuted and all these different things, uh, the state of Oklahoma's governor, Kevin Stitt, he, uh, you know, after reportedly undergoing, you know, prayer for consideration, prayer full consideration of the facts of the case and everything else, he decided to commute Julius Jones's sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole, essentially saving his life. Now, I personally disagree with Governor Stitt's decision, and I'll get more into that here in just a second, but I get why he did it. It was the right move politically because here's the thing. Pro-death penalty people aren't going to not vote for Kevin Stitt in his re-election bid because he did this. Okay, they're going to not be happy about it, but it's not going to be a center point of the opposition for their campaign. Uh, Centrists and independents, however, they might not vote for him because of this, because this is kind of a big deal to them. But most people, I would say, don't actually care that their tax dollars are going to help keep Julius Jones alive and comfortable for decades and decades to come. I don't think they really think about that on a daily basis. And Stitt supporters, which I am one, I voted for him to to be governor this last time around. I think they're going to forget about this or just log it away in the the not a big deal category. This isn't going to be a big thing for Kevin Stitt moving forward. But then we had news coverage. So the news coverage leading up to the exoneration, a lot of people were making fun of Kevin Stitt for even trying to be prayerful in this because most people, obviously, if you're in a secular culture, you're going to make fun of the guy that prays. But the news coverage was obviously very, very one-sided. Most of the left-wing media was like, he should get off. Um, You know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he didn't do this crime and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the Oklahoma government or Oklahoma governor better do the right thing. And there was a lot of activism around this case because this is kind of the new thing. When, When a black person is about to be executed, there's 
all these people that come out of the woodwork to support this person, even if they haven't really kept up with the case. So celebrities like Kim Kardashian, you know, she's kind of big on getting, you know, death penalty reform and, you know, criminal justice reform and all that. And then we had athletes with Oklahoma ties like Russell Westbrook used to play for the Oklahoma City Thunder and Baker Mayfield quarterback for the Browns, but used to be quarterback for OU. Uh, they came out in droves basically saying that he should, his sentence should be commuted. If not, he should just be let out of prison entirely. Um, you know, there was a lot of activism around just getting Julius Jones out of prison entirely. And especially now that his sentence has been commuted, everyone's kind of shifting their focus to, we need to get him out entirely. Like this is a miscarriage of justice that is even in prison, even on death row. And then as, with that, they're using Julius Jones as a part of their activism to get rid of the death penalty altogether. So a lot of people have been fighting against the death penalty. This is on all sides. This isn't really a left-right issue as much as you would think. There are a lot of people think, you know, especially libertarians and different things like that, that the, the death penalty, there's no basis for it. There's been too many problems with it. We shouldn't let it happen. Uh, I forget how many years ago it was, but there was a prisoner that was supposed to be executed in the state of Oklahoma, and there was it was a botched execution. You know, something went wrong with the drugs that they administered, so they had to kind of redo it later. It was, you know, kind of a bad deal, but a lot of people will point to that and say, we just need to get rid of the death penalty altogether. So I'm going to go into some quick thoughts here. And again, stick around because we're going to get into the Christian uh, arguments or how Christians should view the death penalty, but we need to really deal with this case. I want to give some quick thoughts here. Many people were advocating for the commutation of a sentence in order to virtue signal. Because this was kind of an easy, low-hanging fruit. This is a black guy. He was, you know, convicted by a majority white jury in a state that's majority white, which is every state. Um, and, but this is one of those miscarriage of justice things. So they're going to say he, his sentence needs to be commuted so that they can signal virtue. But then there were also many people that were advocating for the commutation of a sentence because they actually believe he's innocent. You know, they, they've read a few blogs, they listen to some podcasts, maybe they watched a documentary, and now all of a sudden they think Julius Jones is innocent of this crime, that he wasn't even there, right? So a lot of people were doing that. But also, people apparently don't know what sentence commutation is. I know it's not something that we normally talk about in everyday conversation, but essentially the death penalty has been removed, but now his sentence is life in prison without the possibility of parole. I think some people thought that he was just going to get out. They were like furious that he wasn't out of prison because the thing is, is with this change in his sentencing, it is in no way removing his guilt. Okay. Because if he's not guilty, you don't commute the sentence. You get rid of the sentence altogether and he goes free. Right. You don't you don't make it life in prison without the possibility of parole. But then this last thing, this has been the thing that, you know, ever since this happened, that's been very, very striking to me. And the striking thing about the Julius Jones case altogether is we're told that we need to give a tremendous amount of compassion to Julius Jones and his family. But not the family of the actual victim, Paul Howell. Because they're the ones that lost a family member, right? Because of this crime. And since 1999, they've been dealing with that for the last 22 years, okay? And now they see the guy that, for all intents and purposes, killed their family member, their dad, their brother, their son. And now it's like, oh, the guy that potentially killed him, allegedly killed him, is going to not be put to death for that. That's got to be a hard thing for them to deal with as well, because this family is constantly having to talk about this and think about this, right? But now we need to get into the real specifics of the case. And so just bear with me because I think this is very, very interesting for a lot of you, especially if you've fallen for a lot of the stuff that, you know, a lot of the left-wing media or bad podcasters have kind of put out there. The reality of this whole situation is that Julius Jones is guilty and he should be dead today. Why should he be dead today? Because by every available measure and evidence, he's guilty. He was found guilty in a court of law by a jury of his peers beyond a reasonable doubt. He was sentenced to death. He's made multiple appeals, way more on that later. They all upheld the conviction and the penalty. So he should be dead, period. 
And we need to get into the cold hard facts about the case. And just quick side note on the cold hard facts. We can't possibly get into all the details here. We can't do like a 10 hour long podcast. I'll try to keep it to the pertinent information. But there was a there's been a tremendous amount of incomplete information or just straight up misinformation about this case. So this is what happens. When the general public bases their opinions off of what is said on a documentary or alleged on some random person's blog and that you don't check your sources because the best sources in this case is the actual evidence, right? The, the court testimony, the transcripts and the family eyewitness testimony, which is the majority of the reason why he was convicted because the family actually did an interview with Channel 4 here in Oklahoma City before the sentence commutation. And this and I'll put the link in the show notes for that. But this was the first time the family actually did an interview in these 22 years because they've been reached out to by international news organizations trying to get them on the record to talk about this, but they did this right before the sentence commutation. You should definitely watch it. It's not a very long video, but here's the deal. In this case, in the Julius Jones case, we have eyewitness evidence that says Julius Jones is a killer. We have DNA evidence saying that Julius Jones is a killer and the murder weapon was found in Julius Jones's residence. There is no reliable evidence to the contrary of any of those three facts. None. Again, Eyewitness testimony, DNA evidence, murder weapon. We have all three of those things, okay? And also, two separate people testified under oath that they saw Julius Jones driving Paul Howell Suburban the day of the murder. The day of the murder. And there's even surveillance video of Julius Jones at a store where he apparently abandoned Paul Howell Suburban after he stole it. The day of the murder, okay? Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about this case, mainly because activists spreading the misinformation in the documentary about Julius Jones, specifically the documentary is called The Last Defense. It was a television docu documentary. Now I think you can stream it on Netflix or Amazon or somewhere like that. But The Last Defense is a lot of the reasons why people, they watch this and now they're looking at the case and they're like, oh, this, this is a tremendous miscarriage of ju justice here. But there are a lot of common misconceptions about the case. But first, we're going to look at the common misconceptions about Julius Jones that need to be debunked. One of the misconceptions is that at the time of the murder, Julius Jones, 19 years old at the time, was attending the University of Oklahoma, OU, on an academic scholarship. Okay, that's one of the things we hear people, a lot of people say. Now, here's the reality is he was a good student in high school. He went to John Marshall in Oklahoma City. He did, in fact, get an academic scholarship to go to OU, but he failed out. After his first semester, he had a 0 0.8 GPA. Okay. He never even finished his second semester. So before he even got to his second semester, he had lost his scholarship and he didn't even make it out of his freshman year. Okay. And that would have been the spring of 1999, his second semester, which he didn't finish. So by the time this murder occurred, he was no longer a scholarship student at OU. He wasn't even a student at OU. Okay. Another common misconception about Julius Jones is that he played on the football and or the basketball teams at the University of Oklahoma. People are like, oh, he was such a great athlete. He just kind of walked on. They wanted him to play. The reality is he never and this is corroborated by the University of Oklahoma, he never played for any of their sports teams. He wasn't on the practice squad. He wasn't on the actual squad. He wasn't given a walk-on spot. It's called nothing. He never played. So he may have been a good athlete, but he did not play for the University of Oklahoma. Another common misconception is he had no previous history of any serious or, or violent crimes. A lot of people are like, oh, we, you know, this is completely out of character for this great kid. Wrong. Super duper Wrong. Okay, so I want you to remember, because these dates are important. Remember that this murder took place July the 28th of 1999. July 28th, 1921, 1999, okay? On July 22nd of 1999, okay? Less than a week earlier, Jones stole a Mercedes after pointing a gun at the owner's head and demanding the keys. One day before that, on July 21st, 1999, Jones stole a Lexus after pointing a gun at the owner's head and demanding the keys. 
He also had a rap sheet that included robbery, armed robbery, illegal possession of a firearm, evading arrest, threats of violence, and others. Okay. And then on July 9th of 1999, just earlier that month, in one of those armed robberies, this time at a jewelry store, he was wearing a red bandana over his nose and mouth. Perhaps you're noticing a pattern here. Okay. Now, he pled guilty to many of those crimes after the murder conviction, and that's not so subtly not mentioned in the documentary. It's not mentioned in all these blogs about these people saying that he's innocent, okay? But the last misconception about Julius Jones before we get into the misconceptions about the actual case is that he's just a nice guy. He's just a nice kid, a young kid, got caught up in some racist criminal conspiracy. He wouldn't hurt anyone, okay? But here's the reality. He's an active gang member in prison, okay? Prison officials have actually intercepted communication by Julius Jones threatening to kill other people while he's still in prison. Okay. So the reality of who Julius Jones is, is he's not a good person. He's a violent thug, a violent thug. And some of you are like, oh, we can't say the word thug anymore to describe people because especially if you say it about a black person, thugs don't have a color. Thugs are thugs. You can be a white thug, Native American thug, a Latinx thug. Thug is thug. And if you heard the word thug and thought immediately I said that because he was a black person, that doesn't make me racist. That makes you racist. But now we need to talk about the misconceptions about the case itself that need to be debunked. Okay. This is very important. The first is that Paul Howe's sister, who is the, the main person to testify in this case because she was eyewitness to her brother's murder, did not accurately describe Julius Jones's appearance. A lot of people are saying that. So Megan, that's Paul's sister, said that the shooter wore a tight stocking cap and a red bandana. Okay. She said that there was an inch of hair above his ears that she could see. Okay. So this led some people to believe that she actually saw Christopher Jordan and not Julius Jones because Christopher Jordan at the time had cornrows. Okay. Which would have stuck out about an inch below a stocking cap. So it's like, oh my gosh, she's talking about a different person. However, Megan wasn't describing cornrows. In the court testimony, she specifically was asked about cornrows and braids. She knows what those things are. And she said that the shooter did not have cornrows and braids or braids. She said that the stocking cap was so tight, she would have been able to notice that. What she was referring to using, you know, not so effective English was Julius Jones had short. She was referring to sideburns, essentially. Okay. Which Julius Jones had short sideburns at the time, about an inch below his ears, an inch out away from his ears. Okay. Christopher Jordan had this scrag these scraggly sideburns that went down the entire side of his jawline like someone trying to do a really bad chin strap, okay? So that's the first thing. That's one of the first misconceptions that a lot of people talked about. The, the second misconception is that there was never a DNA test done on the red bandana that the murder weapon was wrapped in when the police found it, that they never tested it, right? People are claiming this because the prosecutors are, drum roll, guess what? Racist, right? They definitely didn't want to, to test that because that would exonerate a black man because of course, because that's always the narrative, right? Here's the thing. Julius Jones said that the DNA testing of the bandana would exonerate him. He supposedly said openly and, and all the time, please test the bandana, test the bandana. It's going to exonerate me. It's going to prove that I'm innocent. Now, here's the deal. It is true that the DNA test was not done as part of Julius Jones's initial trial, and it could have been. I actually don't know the reason why it wasn't, okay? He was convicted mainly on the eyewitness testimony, okay? So they didn't need the DNA test, but, you know, I, that would have been something that I would have liked to have seen. But since the trial, okay, DNA evidence has been done on the bandana. And the results are not great for Julius Jones fans because this is what the DNA test found. Number one, 
This bandana was 100% worn during the murder of Paul Howe. Number two, this bandana was not worn by Christopher Jordan. And number three, the odds that the DNA on this bandana was not the DNA of Julius Jones is about one in 110 million African-Americans. Okay? Now, there are only around 40 million black people in the United States. So essentially, yes, the DNA on the red bandana was Julius Jones's. That's the reality. Because that uh, the last verdict or whatever, the, the, the documentary, they ended the documentary by saying, and the DNA evidence still hasn't, or the DNA test still hasn't been done on the bandana. But now it has been. And it's not good. It basically points to Julius Jones as a person that was wearing it when the murder happened, right? Here's another common misconception about this case, and that's that Julius Jones was not allowed to testify. And it's like, oh, this is crazy. This guy, you know, he's, he's you know, trying to save his own life. Why wasn't he allowed to testify? But according to the court transcript, which apparently people just don't have enough time to read, Julius Jones was repeatedly asked if he wanted to testify. He actually declined to testify in his own case. Not one time. Not two times, not even three times. On four separate occasions, he declined to testify at his own trial. He was not kept from testifying. He refused to. Okay, another common misconception about this case is that Julius Jones had an alibi for the time of the murder, but was not allowed to present that in court. Okay, now again, he and his entire family claim that Julius Jones was at home the entire night. Okay, that was, you know, the, their home was about a 20 minutes drive away from the site of the murder. He said he was playing Monopoly, eating spaghetti. And so there was no way he could have been there during the murder because he was at home with his family. Now, Julius Jones had two separate attorneys during his trial. Okay, he told both of his attorneys, both of them, that he was, in fact, not at home during the time of the murder. He told his attorneys that, but his family said something else entirely, right? The family of Julius Jones wanted to present this alibi in court and claim that he was in fact at home and couldn't have been at the murder site at the time of the murder. But both attorneys refused to allow the family to do that because they knew that the family was lying. Okay. They were lying. Both of these attorneys testified under oath that they knew the family was lying to try and save Julius Jones. Okay. Attorneys, namely defense attorneys, they can be disbarred for allowing their clients to, or advocates of their clients, to lie on the witness stand if the attorneys know that the testimonies are lies, that the testimonies are false. So I don't know of any defense attorney that's willing to roll that dice. And also, again, as I talked about earlier, there were two eyewitnesses that separately testified under oath that they saw Julius Jones during, driving the stolen Suburban the night of the murder. So he wasn't at home. You know, there were other people like, oh, he was mad about this cookie that his family had been eating. He wasn't eating spaghetti. He wasn't playing Monopoly. He was murdering somebody in Edmond, Oklahoma. Another thing that you've heard a common misconception about this case is that there is reasonable doubt that Julius Jones murdered Paul Howe. There's reasonable doubt. But there's no evidence for this. Julius Jones's case has gone to, this is crazy, and this is very, very important. His case has gone to 13 different appellate courts. 13 including the Supreme Court, four times they've sent this to the Supreme Court. And in each of those cases, in all 13 of the cases that has been sent to an appellate court, the conviction and the sentencing has been upheld 13 times. Okay? So here's my summary of this case. Julius Jones killed Paul Howe. It is beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, DNA evidence, eyewitness testimony, murder weapon. What else do you want? 
Like literally, what else do you need at this point to feel comfortable with the fact that yes, indeed, he did kill Paul Howe? Julius Jones is a thug, he's a murderer, and his death sentence should have been upheld. It should have been carried out. He should be dead today, okay? So now we need to go into how Christians should view the death penalty. Uh, you know, kind of awkward transition here, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to know what the history of the death penalty is. So we'll get into what Christians, how they should view it, but I thought that this was interesting in terms of what the death penalty has been like in the United States. So I've got a thing that I put in the show notes here, but I'm just going to go through a quick timeline of the, the history of the death penalty in the United States. So in 1608 was the first recorded execution in the British American colonies, and that was for treason. In 1682, Pennsylvania, uh, decide, Pennsylvania, <laughs> why did I say it like that? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania limits crimes punishable to death to treason and murder only. That was in 1682. In 1775, the death penalty was used in all 13 U.S. colonies at the outbreak of the American Revolution. In 1787, the Founding Fathers uh, the founding fathers allowed the death penalty when writing the Constitution. On April the 30th of 1790, the first U.S. Congress establishes the federal death penalty. On June the, 20, uh, June the 25th of 1790, uh, the first person executed under the U.S. federal death penalty uh, was done on that date. In 1845, the first National Death Penalty Abolition Society is formed. In 1846, Michigan becomes the first U.S. state to abolish capital punishment except for treason. In 1852, Rhode Island becomes the first state to outlaw the death penalty for all crimes, including treason. On August the 6th, 1890, New York State performs the first execution by electrocution with the assistance of Thomas Edison's engineers. On February 8th of 1924, the first U.S. execution by gas chamber was carried out in the state of Nevada. In August of August 14th of 1936, that was when the last public execution took place in the United States. On January 13th of 1947, the Supreme Court finds the second uh, execution attempt after a technical malfunction does not constitute cruel and unusual punishment. On July 2nd of 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirms the constitutionality of the death penalty. On June the 29th of 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court finds death penalty to be an excessive punishment for rape crimes, unfortunately. On July 2nd, 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that capital punishment is excessive for a dependent who played a minor role in a felony murder. On December 7th of 1982, Texas performs its first lethal injection. On June the 26th of 1986, the U.S. Supreme Court rules ex the execution of insane persons unconstitutional. On June 28th of 1993, Kirk Bloodsworth becomes the first American sentenced to death row to be exonerated with DNA testing. So thank God for that. On January the 25th of 1996, that was the last execution by hanging in the United States. On March the 3rd of 1999, that was the last execution by gas chamber. On June the 11th of 2001, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh, first, uh, he was the first federal prisoner to be executed in 38 years. And thank God that tremendous piece of crap is in hell now. In December 18th of 2007, the United Nations General Assembly passes a resolution calling for a moratorium on the death penalty, essentially saying, hey, let's pause the death penalty. On June the 25th of 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court finds death penalty excessive for the crime of child rape, unfortunately. On June the 18th of 2010, that was the last execution by firing squad. And then in March 23rd of 2015, Utah reinstates the use of firing squad for execution. So there uh, kind of brings you up to speed. And in the link I'll put in the show notes, there's a whole lot more information, but I just pulled out the stuff that I thought you would uh, find interesting. 
So let's talk about the current state of the death penalty in the United States. So right now, there are 24 states that still have the death penalty. Okay, three states, California, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, they currently have a moratorium on the death penalty. Essentially, they're uh, they're about to eradicate it would be the thought. So 23 states have abolished the death penalty altogether. That's, uh, there have been eight states that have done, sa- done that since 2011. Uh, the last two were Colorado in 2020, and most recently, Virginia in 2021 this year. Only 16 states have carried out death penalty execution since 2011. As of January the 1st of 2021, around 2,500 people are currently on death row in the United States. Uh, the number one state for that is California. They have uh, 704, I think, right now. And that's, again, as of January 1st, 704 people on death row, and that's a moratorium uh, on that in that state, so those people likely won't be executed. Florida has the second most people on death row with 343, and the state of Texas has the third most with 205 people that are on death row. There are currently around 60 federal prisoners that are set to be killed by the federal government. And here's the other thing, what we execute people for. We only execute people in the United States for murder and treason. Okay. And I think the last execution for treason was sometime in the 1800s. So we're essentially not doing that anymore. I certainly think that we should expand that. You've heard me talk about this on on the show before, that if you rape somebody, right, beyond a reasonable doubt, you're found guilty. You should be executed for that. If you're a pedophile, if you've raped small children, if you've uh, performed sex acts with small children, you should be killed for that as well. I mean, I think that is an absolute uh, violation of the Imago Dei and for people's personal sexual sovereignty. So absolutely, I think that we should um, execute people for that. But again, we don't really do that in this country. So let's go ahead and get in, as I promised for the last half hour, how Christians should view the death penalty. Okay. And in order to talk about how Christians should view the death penalty, we need to go directly to Scripture, obviously. So the logic of capital punishment comes directly from the Holy Scriptures, okay? So let's break this down. The first thing, as I just mentioned, is the Imago Dei. So we see this in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So by this, we know that an assault on any person, right, is an assault on the image of God. So that's the first thing. That's the Imago Dei. Then we get into the covenant with Noah. So all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve, right? And we're all descendants of Noah because Noah was the only, Noah and his family, I guess, because they were the only people left after the great flood, right? So essentially, if human nature and action did not improve after the flood, there needed to be some sort of law by which to judge the actions of humans against other humans, right? So God needed to put something in place. So we see this in Genesis 9 verses 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it from, and I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So I think uh, the ESV study Bible breaks this down very, very well. So the quote here, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So essentially, if a person or an animal kills a human, they would be held accountable by God. Okay? So we're establishing some sort of a law, whereas a just God can judge an animal or a person for destroying another human being that's been made in the image of God. Okay. And then we have this as well, uh, the quote that says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. We'll see that in Exodus as well, which we'll go into here in just a second, but that's basically the concept of a life for a life. And then the quote here, and God made man in his own image. Obviously that's going back to Genesis 127. So again, an attack on a human is an attack on the image of God that cannot be ignored. Okay. Then we also get into God's law given to Moses in Exodus. Okay. So Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Again, some people say thou shall not kill, but it is murder. They're talking about murder, the intentional destruction of another human life. Okay. Then we have Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. 
And then in Exodus 21, 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Okay. Now the Bible, and I think this, this is very important, especially for people that don't think we should have the death penalty. It creates a very, very high standard for the death penalty as well. So in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Okay, so this is actually echoed in the New Testament and well in Matthew 18.16 by Jesus and Hebrews 10.28 by Paul. So circumstantial evidence alone is not enough by the biblical standard in order to convict somebody of the death penalty to warrant that punishment. Okay. There had to be eyewitness testimony. Now uh, that would actually be easier in a tribal culture at the time when this was written than it would be in a modern culture, but that was the standard that was set forth in scripture for us. Okay. Now God also, because some people kind of get into the weeds about this, God gives our governing authorities, right? The ability and the right to carry out his law. So you've heard Romans 13 talked a lot about with COVID restrictions and the lockdowns and everything, but I'm going to read verses one through five of Romans 13, because this is pertinent to the death penalty discussion. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is a servant of God an avenger of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugate, uh, subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So a lot of people there, when they're talking about, you know, an avenger carrying out God's wrath or the sword, uh, bearing the sword, uh, they're thinking about the, the sword in a, a, um, really in the context of the ultimate punishments that could be levied out or even other punishments as well. So essentially, guys, that's the basis for the pro-death penalty position. Okay, so when you go to scripture, when people are looking for the scriptures that give you a basis, that's it. Okay, you can dig in further and it kind of has some tendrils that go out from those scriptures. But the bottom line is this. If you intentionally murder someone, okay, you forfeit your right to life. And, and by by the standard for conviction, and I would say this, the standard for conviction and execution is high. So even going back to the Julius Jones case, you know, you need, you know, two or three eyewitnesses according to biblical law, right? Paul Howe's sister and both of his young children were witnesses to his murder. Okay. So again, going back to that case, Julius Jones should be dead today, even if you're just using basic biblical law. But now I want to get into some objections to the death penalty, because this is important as well, because you have a lot of people that are going to object in a lot of different ways. And I want to give you guys you know, the right words to say. So if you are kind of giving, you're getting pushback on this particular subject, you know, I want to make sure that you're actually comfortable with giving, giving some sort of an apologetic back. Okay. So the first thing you'll hear people say is that your support for the death penalty comes from the old Testament, you know, AKA the old covenant, you know, we're under a new covenant. Now the old covenant is no more, but these are people that aren't really looking at the context in the new Testament. So I want to bring something to your attention here. That is what Paul was doing in acts. And so in acts 25, Paul is in Caesarea and he's before a Roman tribunal. The Jews came down to Caesarea to perform, or to, I guess to put forth some mostly erroneous charges against Paul, maybe completely erroneous charges against Paul. And I want to look at what we see here in acts 28 verses eight through 11. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offenses? But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I then or if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Okay? So again, the the, the focus here is where he says if I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Okay? So since we're in the New Testament times right now, and Jesus fulfilled the law, you know, the, this scripture begs the question, why didn't Paul just say, Jesus fulfilled the law? We're under a new covenant. You can't do anything to me. He never says that. Okay? Because you would think that would come up because some of the charges that the Jews were levying against Paul at the time would carry a death sentence. So if there was an eradication of the, the laws that we see in the Old Testament, which support a death sentence, don't you think Paul would have said that? The New Testament does not have any denunciation of capital punishment. Now, you can twist some things around to make your case, but it's not terribly compelling. Okay? And also, before we leave this point, if you're a Christian, because I know a lot of Christians that are anti-death penalty, if you're a Christian, you believe in ultimate justice and ultimate hope, right? So ultimate justice means there will be justice beyond this world. So we don't need social justice on this planet because we know that there will ultimately be justice. People will be judged for the actions that they've committed against people, right? And against God. But there's also ultimate hope. There is hope beyond this world. So I'm confused when a lot of Christians want to get rid of the death penalty because they're not giving a, a, a very good reasoning for that. And it's almost like they're forgetting, hey, let, let's say that, that, someone's executed and they were actually innocent, which we'll get into more here in just a second. Like there's ultimate hope there for that person. But then for other people that have maybe should have been executed that haven't been executed, there will be justice for that person as well. And I would pray that those people would, you know, would accept the gospel and be covered in the blood of Christ, but they will still have to face judgment for what they've done. Another thing you'll hear people say about the death penalty is, well, you're just bloodthirsty. Right. You know, you might hear as I'm talking through the Julius Jones case, how I was getting excited about it. You might be like, oh, you're just bloodthirsty. You just want the guy to die. But the reality is, is that I think that if you murder someone and that's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you should die. Like I'm about justice, not blood. Justice is very, very important in a worldly context and in a, you know, otherworldly context, a heavenly context. So I think that this should be applied carefully, that the death penalty should be applied very, very carefully, but it should ultimately be applied. It doesn't have anything to do with blood and my lust for it, right? Another thing you'll hear people say is that innocent people have been executed before, right? And, and because of that, we've got to get rid of the death penalty altogether. Now, here's the deal. That is 100% true, the first part. There is no way that that's not true. It's hard to tell how many, it's impossible to tell how many innocent people have been executed for their crimes. But it's been a lot. It certainly happened. It's happened all over the globe. But the misapplication of a thing cannot be the sole reason for getting rid of the thing. Because if the death penalty is misapplied in certain instances, that doesn't automatically mean that it's misapplied in all instances. Now, I understand the arguments like, well, some people have been caught, caught up in this and they were innocent and we should get rid of it entirely. But again, the fact is, that this has happened to, the fact that this has happened to innocent people should encourage us to have higher standards, you know, higher expectations and higher requirements on our justice system, not to just get rid of it. Because if you get rid of the death penalty, that's a slow chipping away of all crimes and all punishments. 
And people think, oh, it's slippery slope. You, it's slippery slope. You can't say that. But we're, li- we're living in a world right now where the slippery slope argument, the fallacy no longer exists. It's just an argument. It's just a description of fact. Because look at just this week, we're removing, you know, statues of uh, Thomas Jefferson and of Teddy Roosevelt, right? We're removing them and taking other places. And people thought Trump was crazy, you know, three, four years ago when he said, yeah, you know, you're coming after, you know, these statues of these Confederate generals and all that. How long until it's George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? You're like, oh, that's crazy. You know, that, that the slippery slope, you can't say something like that. And then here we are, like one administration later, and those things are happening. And so when you take away the death penalty, why wouldn't we just take away all mandatory sentences? Wouldn't that be next? Why don't we take away harsh sentences? And then who gets to decide what's harsh, right? It opens up a lot of doors that we don't want to get into. Another thing that you'll hear people say that want to get rid of the death penalty is, you know, why don't you want this person to live longer, Kyle? Won't that, you know, increase their chances of accepting Christ if we don't kill them, if we let them just die of old age? Now, I guess you, I suppose that you could look at it that way, but I'd say a better way to look at it is that they've had their entire life to hear and accept the gospel up to that point, okay? And typically it takes decades in between the handing down of a death sentence and the execution of a death sentence. There is certainly time for this person to accept Christ. And I don't want to get into all the, you know, arguments about, oh, you know, election and, you know, whether people get to choose and, you know, free will and all that. I don't have time for that. But there's time for these people to accept Christ. So I, I don't see a reason to delay the justice because this person, if we don't kill them now, you know, they just die 30, 40, 50 years later in a prison cell that they might accept Christ. I I don't really see the compelling argument for that. Another thing you'll hear, and this is very, very common, is that the death penalty is racist. So it should be abolished because it's racist. Now, I know that I don't mean this to be tongue in cheek. It's going to sound that way. The death penalty can't be racist because the death penalty is not a person. It's a thing. Like a water bottle can't be racist. A philosophy, like just a description of a philosophy can't be racist. Things can be racist in practice. But when you say the death penalty is racist, which a lot of major news outlets were posting stories about, you know, with that type of a caption, it's like, what are you talking about? So that's first of all. Second of all, we only execute people for murder in this country. Okay. We can execute them for treason, but we don't. And black people, while only making up around 15% of the population in the United States, they commit around 56% of all the murders in this country. And the overwhelming majority of those murders are of other black people. This is according to the FBI. So 15% of the population, around 56% of the murders, and a very high percentage of those murders are of other black people. Okay? So right now, this is important. Right now, black people only constitute around 40% of death row inmates. Okay? So by that measure, Statistically speaking, and since we only execute people for murder, black people should actually represent a higher amount of death row inmates than they currently do. Again, only around 40% of death row inmates are black, but every year, over 50% of the murders are done by black people. So when people say that it's racist, it doesn't even make philosophical sense, but it certainly doesn't make sense when you look at the data. Okay, again, I'll go over it one more time because this is important. They make up 15% of the population every year, over 50% of the murders, and they only constitute 40% of death row inmates. Help me understand, right? I'm the bigoted racist for pointing out these stats. Do you have a response? 
Another thing that you'll you hear, and if you listen to this podcast, you, you've heard me talk about this before, but you hear people say, you're pro-death penalty, so you can't be pro-life. Now, in episode 257 of this podcast a few weeks ago, I did an episode called How to Engage Pro-Abortion Arguments. Here's the reality. This entire argument that if you're pro-death penalty, you're not pro-life, it's meant to distract you by equating two things that are not related. Again, in that episode, I talked about the most simple way to look at the, the pro-life argument. It's that abortion intentionally and directly destroys innocent human life, and it's always wrong to intentionally and directly destroy innocent human life. Now, when the state or the nation kills someone, these people are typically very, very far from innocent. They've been convicted guilty beyond a reasonable doubt for murder. They've gone through the appellate process and all those things have been upheld. So the way that you respond to that person is, are you saying that an innocent unborn child is the same as a murderer? Because in the United States, we only get rid of people. We only execute people if they murdered other people. So tell me how the, the living baby inside the womb is exactly like a murderer. Help me understand that. And then another thing that we look at, this is the last one that we'll go through, is the death penalty doesn't deter crimes. You hear people actually say that. And my response would be is, it wouldn't if the executions came more quickly after convictions. Don't you think if executions came more quickly after convictions that that would actually deter crimes? I certainly think so. But there's a great quote from, it's actually a paragraph uh, from Joseph Bissett. So he wrote an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal back in 2018. So I'm going to read this quote to you here. So the quote here, here, let me get it. Let me pull it up. All right, here we go. There is also a deeper kind of deterrence largely overlooked in discussions of the death penalty, which doesn't require rational calculation. When a society imposes the ultimate punishment for the most heinous murders, it powerfully teaches that murder is a great wrong. Children growing up in such a society internalize this message with the result that most people wouldn't even consider killing another person. Here, the principle of justice, which demands that malefactors receive a punishment proportionate to their offense and deterrence of this deeper sort meet. If we abolish the death penalty for even the most heinous and cold-blooded murderers, we fatally undermine the idea of justice as the cornerstone of our criminal justice system. Over time, justice will be replaced by a therapeutic or technocratic model that treats human beings as cases to be managed and socially engineered rather than as morally responsible persons. Again, this is from a Wall Street Journal article by Joseph Bassett in 2018. I'll put that in the show notes as well. That's absolutely right and absolutely perfect. It goes to what I was talking about earlier. You get rid of the death penalty, then you get rid of the moral, uh, the, the, the morality of what's going on in that moment. And society, like as a kid, I knew that the death penalty was a thing. And I knew you didn't get the death penalty for stealing bubblegum, right? You knew that you got the death penalty if you killed somebody. So constantly from an early age, it's, it's something inside you, even if before you have like a biblical ethic or before you have any sort of societal, societal ethic or political ethic, you know that killing another person is wrong. You may not know why. You may not have thought through all the philosophies and all the potentialities for why that is the way that it is, as I laid out earlier with the biblical arguments, but you know it's wrong. And so when you get rid of the death penalty entirely, which a lot of states have done, right? You're telling these people that even if you rape and murder an entire family and bathe in their blood, we'll just let you rot in prison until you die eventually. And then there are a lot of people that murder someone that eventually get out. That's the other thing is, do you know how many people are convicted of murder that are given, you know, 25, 30 year sentences? Why should these people ever be, be allowed to get out? You're like, oh, they were just a kid and all they did. Did they not know that killing someone was wrong? Because that goes right back to this argument that if they do make that, that declaration, like, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. You know, I was you know, 17 and I was in a gang. I just thought it was what I was supposed to do. When you take away the death penalty, you're also taking away this moral idea that you shouldn't end other people's lives, other innocent people's lives. 
So I think that's really, really important to discuss. So I guess in summary for this entire episode, if you personally are anti-death penalty, you're anti-God's law. That is so unbelievably clear. I laid it out there right there for you, and you can't say that it was done away with in the New Testament. If you're anti the death penalty, and again, I'm talking to you Christians out there, you're anti-God's law. And also, if you're anti-death penalty, you're assuming the position of a higher and better standard than God's. This is maybe the most important point, is you are thinking somehow that you know better than God. God says, you know, life for a life. If you end someone's life intentionally, you should have your life taken from you. Again, with two or three eyewitnesses. But you, you with, with your pea brain, your brain that only functions at like 12 or 13% of what its actual capacity is, right? You think that you know better than God. You've read the scripture as well, and I read this passage, and then I heard uh, some woke person on uh, TikTok talk about how death penalty, death penalty should be eradicated, and this is what I think now. And I would just say, who are you? Who are you to say that? Who are you to know? And the reality is, is that you don't. You don't have a higher and better standard than God does. You simply don't. So why are you still arguing? All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you. I've got the website. It's called Justice for Paul Howe. So if you want some more, you want to dig into some more of the things I was talking about, about the Julius Jones case, you can go to that website. That's a website that was set up by the family. Also got a couple of YouTube videos. One is called A Time to Speak, The Family of Paul Howe. That was what Channel 4 out here in Oklahoma City did. That was kind of like the little 9-10 minute thing where they interviewed the family. Then I also have a video where this guy is called Julius Jones is 100% guilty. He breaks down some of the things about the transcripts and the court case so you can check that out. Also, the historical timeline of the death penalty in the United States, if you want to check that information out, it's there because it's a bunch of different sources kind of coalesced into one. And then I have that Wall Street Journal article uh, and it was about, it was called The Cope, uh, the Pope rather Makes a Fatal Error. And that's where I got that quote that we just talked about a few minutes ago. Alright guys, thanks so much for listen to this podcast we do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this please subscribe rate and leave a positive review if you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life that's info at undaunted.life you can follow us on instagram and tiktok and like us on facebook and you can check out our website for everything else including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way just go to www.undaunted.life and we want to also thank the band august burns red for allowing us to use their music for our content the music on this podcast is their song cutting the ties which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah